And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 27th, 2020, six minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Vasurlian, our digital editors, Amelia Brust and David Thornton. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, meet the Commerce Department scientist considered a world leader in cybersecurity. Plus, today is a red-letter day for NASA and for American space exploration. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, one in seven federal employees say they've experienced some form of sexual harassment at their offices. That's just one of many findings in a recent 264-page report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. The commission wanted to see how the nation's largest employer handled sexual harassment in the federal workplace. The findings are grim. Few federal employees even know their rights for reporting. For how tough the reporting process can be, Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco spoke with a member of the commission, Debo Adigbole. There clearly is a challenge for federal employees in understanding or, or being able to view a clearly lit path in terms of how one makes reports where they encounter sexual harassment in, in the federal workplace and what the procedures and policies are that would govern those reports. There is a seemingly Byzantine process, as you have mentioned, many agencies have, have slightly different approaches. And one of our noteworthy findings was that during the period between 2014 and 2016, the EEOC reviewed the anti-harassment programs of each federal agency. And it was the finding of the EEOC that the vast majority of federal agencies had ineffective anti-harassment programs because they were missing essential components, such as adequately implementing their policies and or a failure to clearly communicate with employees. I think that second piece, the failure to communicate with employees, points to the issue that you are identifying. This is a very difficult and stressful situation in any circumstance, and not knowing what the process is, what the applicable timeframes are, what the costs of action or inaction may be for ultimate redress of your claims, creates a circumstance in which victims of sexual harassment are not very well situated to always have their claims heard and to get a fair and equitable resolution. And how about employees' understanding of the role of the EEOC itself? You know, from going through the report, I mean, there are definitely differences for someone from the private sector, for example, versus someone at one of these agencies. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if federal employees were confused, perhaps, about the differences and the avenues that they had. The EEOC in the federal workplace plays what is largely a counseling and advisory role with certain appellate and later stage assessments that can be made under the EEOC. But the core distinction, I think, between public employees and private employees is that our system requires public employees to pursue internal agency processes before they can ever get to the point where they could go directly to the EEOC to try and revisit their complaint or appeal an agent's, a final agency determination or file a case. There is that maze, that Byzantine maze that we describe 
of internal agency processes, which is framed by certain time limits and a lack of clarity and full understanding, that's the first line that any reporter of sexual harassment must encounter. And the EEOC's role really comes at a later stage should an employee decide to continue to pursue their claim after exhausting the internal agency processes. And that's a distinction because a private sector employee can go more directly to the EEOC or consider bringing a, a lawsuit. The report mentions that there are antiquated laws that are ultimately behind some of these differences between public and, and private sector employees. And you even go so far as to say that federal employees ultimately have fewer workplace protections than their counterparts in the private sector. I'm wondering if you can describe what that disconnect is. I mean, you kind of touched on it earlier just with the avenues that they have to pursue their case before the EEOC, but I'm wondering what else there might be that led you to that conclusion. There are a number. For example, there are pretty strict timeframes that apply to public employees, including a requirement that the internal processes be commenced within 45 days of the incident. Now, from practical knowledge, from human experience, we understand the coercive nature, the jarring nature, the sensitive nature of sexual harassment events in the workplace. 45 days is not a long time to fully understand and appreciate the context of all that's happening to assess the ramifications of coming forward or not coming forward in a particular case, and then to educate yourself about what the entire process is and to correctly take the right steps in the right sequence to vindicate your, your rights. So that 45-day period, in a sense, is a pressure of use your, your rights and your process rights internally at the agency or potentially lose, lose those rights to proceed and vindicate. That's one important issue. Another issue is that there are compensatory damages caps that exist and that are, are tied in some measure to the size of the agency. And as our report notes, these damages caps have, have been in place since, I think, the year I, I graduated college in the, in the very early 1990s. Almost 30 years, these caps have been in place. And so the economics of those numbers are so depressed that even if you work through the process and are vindicated, there is a legal constraint on the extent to which you can be vindicated as a matter of compensatory damages. And that has an impact in making you whole for uh, any violations of your rights that you have experienced. But it also has a separate and perhaps equally important impact is that it makes it a very difficult market decision for outside counsel to take up your case after you've gone through the process should you want to pursue a litigation or a further process with the EEOC, the economics of the return are not really there in a terribly strong way. I also wonder whether, you know, first of all, if you even understand the time limits that you have and those caps and damages that you just mentioned, 
I imagine that they might also be a disincentive for potentially someone to come forward and report to begin with. I wonder if that's something that you explored at all. One of the big concerns that many people who experience sexual harassment have is how will coming forward to vindicate your rights affect your career prospects, not only in terms of promotion, but in some cases of of retaining your job. And most people very much need their job and their livelihood. And so these incidents are happening in a context where you very often have supervisory personnel who are not acquitting themselves in a, in a way that's consistent with, with federal law and are abusing their power relationship with their employees. And these factors raise the specter of retaliation, which is one of the issues that the report points to. There is a sense in the report that the lion's share of sexual harassment complaints don't actually get reported in part because this is a form of harassment that is happening in a context where the stakes are very high for individuals. And one consequence of the fear of retaliation, the costs of raising your hand and trying to vindicate your rights, one consequence of people being deterred from coming forward and engaging in the process is very often you don't have remedies, you don't have consequences for the people who are conducting um, themselves inappropriately in the workplace. And at times you, you may have a situation where the same person can have repeat behavior and not having been held to account for their improprieties may visit them on another person. I did want to move to some of your recommendations, you know, going back to the issues that you described earlier about the time constraints associated with reporting and the financial caps on damages. You all make some specific recommendations on what should change, and I'm just wondering if you can briefly describe them. We made some recommendations that focus at the EEOC, some that focus at the two large agencies that we looked at more closely, NASA and the uh, State Department, and then some recommendations that were for Congress. We suggested that the EEOC should eliminate its fee-based federal agency training process and replace it with free training. The idea, and by the EEOC's own assessment, internal anti-harassment and sexual harassment policies of all of the agencies are in need of some improvement. This is true across the board and according to the EEOC's own finding. We're saying that the EEOC, rather than charging other agencies of the, of the federal government for training, should be able to offer this to every agency for free so that it gets taken up adequately. And of course, this may have funding implications for the EEOC, but these are things that we think are important. We also noted that Congress should establish a, a type of federal ombudsperson empowered to investigate alleged sexual harassment claims of complainants who have not had adequate recourse through existing and available channels. And we said further that Congress should allocate additional funds to enable the EEOC to help agencies proactively identify and prevent sexual harassment. 
this this was a point that the EEOC's testimony before the commission made that there are some areas in which additional funding could help it be a more effective agency. And this is one of the one of the things that we pointed to. In particular, the EEOC was focused on some technological tools that could assist it in tracking trends in more real time and to launch an inspector general type of in-depth investigations so that, that there can be greater consequences and, and a, a better exploration of these events. Moreover, we suggested that Congress should amend the No Fear Act to automatically refer every finding of discrimination to the Office of Special Counsel to facilitate compliance with EEOC orders and that the staff of the Office of Special Counsel should be appropriately increased to enable it to have the capacity to respond appropriately. We also suggested that Congress should enact explicit statutory protections from sexual harassment for federal government contractors and interns, whether paid or unpaid. There is an interesting and, in my view, unfortunate development in the law that essentially treats unpaid interns as those that can't invoke the sexual harassment protections of Title VII based on various legal interpretations. And similarly, there is a, a legal test about when contractors can avail themselves of those protections. And what we're saying is that sexual harassment is a troubling phenomenon that adversely affects people in the workplace and that your ability to seek redress for that bad conduct should not turn upon whether you're an intern who is paid or unpaid or whether you're a contractor or employee of the agency. We don't wanna create and have and tolerate in the law categories and classes of people who are without protection from these type of practices because we think it's contrary to the, the role of the federal government. As I said, the federal government is the largest employer in the nation, and it's essential that the federal government that propounds and enforces the federal civil rights laws be exemplary in these areas and be a model that other employers can point to. And some of the recommendations that I've described would help point in that direction how did you pick NASA and the State Department to look at more closely? The federal government is so large, we could not look at every single agency. We didn't have the capacity or the resources or the time to look at every agency. But we thought one helpful undertaking, because the federal government requires that sexual harassment is dealt with within the agency in the first instance, we thought it would be helpful to look at two large agencies, agencies that have very substantial workforces, and to see how they are addressing these issues of sexual harassment. Both are unique in some ways. NASA has a lot of tech-focused uh, employees, and we all know what its mission is. The State Department, as I've described, is spread out throughout the United States and the world, and that poses special challenges. Can you explain what you mean by a corridor reputation? This is a phenomenon that was spoken about by a number of State Department employees. The State Department is, in a sense, unique in the whole federal government because so many of its employees are posted in places around the world. 
and it is a an agency that contemplates career advancement in the foreign service by being posted for relatively discrete periods of time in various posts around the world and then moving on to a subsequent post and a new role and responsibility and these competitive and regular endeavors to find new positions to help carry out the business of the United States and to advance your career in the context of the State Department depend in large measure on word of mouth and recommendations of superiors and your reputation. In the State Department, this is known as corridor reputation. And what this creates in the context of concerns about sexual harassment in the State Department and what we described is an overarching concern that one cost of raising your hand to engage in the agency-based processes to get redress for being the victim of, of sexual harassment could be that you would take a knock on your so-called corridor reputation, your ability to be promoted, to have good opportunities, to progress in some cases, to uh, potentially keep your job. And because these things are happening all over the world and, and in remote places, there is a concern that not all of the internal practices are up to up to snuff and that there are real risks here. It may be called different things in different agencies, but it comes back to this point about what are the costs of speaking up and how will that affect you? And what we need to have is a system that has clearer processes that are known to employees and a greater likelihood of redress and meaningful redress such that there are consequences for those who violate have you gotten a sense of what Congress's appetite might be to make some of these changes? Our sense is that it definitely is of interest to Congress. And I think that there is legislation afoot, different pieces of legislation afoot, perhaps in both the House and the Senate, that tries to attack pieces of this problem. I know that the late Elijah Cummings proposed a bill in, in 2019 before he passed away that was identified and, and directed at the intern problem, among other things that I just spoke of, realizing that that was a gap. Congresswoman Spear and others in the House are leading an effort, as I understand it, to attack additional pieces of the problem. And there are senators who are looking at pieces of these problems as well. Debo Adigbole, a commissioner for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. In the next hour, Adigbole discusses the recommendations the commission recently made to Congress and the White House about sexual harassment in the federal workplace. We'll post the interview in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.